So Money episode 387, Mindy McKenzie. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Today's episode is brought to you by Stamps.com. Welcome back to So Money, everyone. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. Very happy this week. Uh, We just crossed the 2 million download threshold. Can you believe it? 2 million downloads. It's taken us a lot less time to get here than I thought. You know, it took us almost a year to get to a million. And now just, you know, four months into the new year, we have 2 million downloads. It's incredible. And of course, could not have done it without you. And so I'm celebrating all week. If you aren't following me yet on Instagram, head over to Instagram. It's a lot of fun. I'm Farnoosh Tarabi, one word on Instagram. I have a little contest I'm running all week. So here's how it works. Um, Take a photo of yourself listening to So Money, then post it on Instagram. Use the hashtag SoMoney2Million. That's one word, hashtag SoMoney2Million. Be creative and you can post as many times as you want. And on Friday at noon Eastern, I'm going to announce 10 people on Instagram who will be receiving a $100 Amazon gift card each for their support, and just as a way to say thank you. Um, This is a huge milestone for us, and I just wanted to get the word out there, get everyone excited. Maybe people don't know what So Money is, and they're on Instagram, and they're like, what the heck is So Money? Why are people listening to it? And maybe they'll join, and they'll uh, have their lives changed, as so many of you have told me this show has really helped you for the better. For me, I mean, it's just, uh, I can't even describe how this podcast has changed my life in more ways than one. So I would love to engage with you on Instagram. The rules again, just head over to Instagram, take a photo of yourself, um, be creative. I would love for the creativity to come through, post as many pictures of yourself as you want, but you have to use the hashtag so money 2 million in order for me to find you and also to qualify. And on Friday at noon Eastern, I will announce 10 people on Instagram who will receive a $100 Amazon gift card each. So looking forward to seeing you all there. Today's guest, let's talk about today's guest, is Mindy McKenzie. She's a CEO advisor, accomplished corporate executive, acclaimed speaker, and advisor to many of the country's top chief executive officers. And she has quite the resume. She served herself as chief performance officer at Beam, massive company, where she earned the nickname The Velvet Hammer during her time there. And she was revered by her colleagues for telling the truth amongst the executive team. The truth, something that we underrate sometimes. She used a combination of honesty and empathy to lead her team. And before that, she spent five years at Campbell's Soup, nine years at Walmart, and all of this to say that she now has the expertise to really coach CEOs to improve their leadership. And so she's doing this through her own company, MM Enterprises. She's helping CEOs and C-suite level executives increase both their personal fulfillment and professional impact. She also has a new book out called The Courage Solution, The Power of Truth-Telling with Your Boss, Your Peers, and Your Team. Telling the truth at work. So with Mindy, we talk about that. Like, how do you actually truth-tell at work without being that person who's like, oh, here we go, Farnoosh, opening up her mouth, telling it like it is. Mindy also has some pretty 
sobering stories about growing up as a kid and the kind of financial lessons that she learned and how those lessons ultimately helped her as an adult, now as a mom, lead a better financial path. So here we go. Here is the lovely Mindy McKenzie. Mindy McKenzie, welcome to So Money. Great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. You have quite the resume. I mean, these days you're known as someone who helps CEOs uh, just get better at their game. And I think CEOs, perhaps in this uh, century, this generation of CEOs, a little bit of some crisis management, you know, some good PR is what they need because uh, some people believe CEOs get paid too much. They don't do enough to, to help the common, the common folks at the company. So we'll get into some of that. Um, but you're, personal resume is very impressive. You know, having worked at everywhere from Walmart to Campbell Soup to Beam, what were, I guess, some of the greatest lessons that you personally learned working in those environments? These massive, in some cases, you know, uh, Fortune 500 companies, Fortune 100 companies as a woman too at the top. What was that like? Oh gosh. Well, one thing I can tell you for sure, Farnoosh, is that the only thing that you can reliably change or control at any company is yourself. And it sounds so simple, but it's so important to remember because everybody wants something to change wherever they're at. And, um, you got to own what you do. And that's when you're, when you're a junior burger, like I was building my career at Walmart all those years ago, all the way to being in the C-suite. So what were some of the things that you wanted to change, but you felt, you know what, I'm just going to work on my path as, as opposed to like changing the system? Well, I actually do think you can change the system and um, you, but you do it through owning your own behavior and impact. And probably one of the greatest stories is when I moved from Sydney, Australia to Chicago for the Jim Beam job uh, and was the only female on the executive team and all that. I had loved my life um, in Australia, my son and I, and we make this move. And the very first year was absolutely a disaster. <laughs> my boss and I did not, um, we just couldn't get in alignment. I was miserable, regretting that I'd moved. And I'd forgotten that I needed to kind of own the reality that I was creating. And I was sitting in a big executive job where you can drive a lot of change. And so the big lesson that I learned was to basically get my act together and start engaging with my boss differently. And ultimately, that's how I earned the nickname of the Velvet Hammer while I was at Jim Beam. The Velvet Hammer. So how did you change your behavior specifically? Like what was maybe one or two tweaks that you made? I did three things, actually. Um, the I, I was I was sitting Farnoosh in my office late, late one night, and I was on the phone with my mentor and I was complete. We had a monthly call. I was complaining to him again and venting and blah, blah, blah about my boss and everything. And he finally said, Mindy, um, your boss is not going to change. So either you, you're going to change or you're going to have to quit. And I just kind of sat there. I was like, well, I'm not quitting. And that's the night I decided to change. And what I changed was. Uh, three things. My attitude, I decided to absolutely start positively looking for things that I respected about my boss. He wasn't a bad guy. We just were not in sync. 
And I would only allow myself to focus on those things that I respected. The second thing I went on was a no complaining diet. Like that was it. No venting, no complaining, nothing. And the old adage, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. That is what I did. So, and the third thing that was probably the most powerful thing was that I started asking him a question at the end of every week. And I call it the magic question. And I, I actually do keynotes on this and, and teach this to everybody because it changed the game. And the question is to ask your boss, what is your single greatest priority for the coming week? And the reason that's so powerful is because it allows you to get on your boss's wavelength and find out what's rolling around in their head so that you can bring solutions to them. And that's when everything started to change. Um, and I started listening better, started bringing him solutions, and it resulted in me being his right-hand man, ironically. It's the only female on the team. Um, and it was, it was great. But that goes back to that principle of you can only reliably change or control yourself at any company. That's it. So no matter the power that you sit and have. um, So I had the same exact fork in the road when I was contemplating quitting. Well, I just didn't know what to do. I I had this terrible manager at one point and I was complaining all the time, feeling terrible because like, I'm sure like how you felt, you got this amazing job. In some ways, it was maybe your dream job and then you arrive at it and it's anything but. And it's largely to do with whoever you're teamed up with. And it was my father who said to me exactly what your mentor said, which was, you have two choices here. You can quit or you can, you know, change your relationship with your boss. And you believe it or not, you actually have the power to do that instead of changing your boss, because that's just not going to happen. And like you, I said, quit. Like that hadn't even entered my mind. I just thought quitting was impossible, like not even an option. And, um, and it was very relieving to hear that because I was like, oh, well then there's, I don't have to just, you know, die at this job miserably. I can actually do things to improve my situation and make the relationship healthier. Um, so yeah, that's a good magic question. What's your single greatest priority? Cause it also, I think what it gives your boss is the sense that, you know what? Um, I matter, you care and we're a team. And sometimes that gets lost in translation. Totally does. And here's the thing, what you realize as a boss, as you know, you're running your own company and you have people working for you. The dynamic is typically that as a boss, you're solving everybody else's problems. You're removing barriers and obstacles. You're making decisions all the time. And imagine how amazing it would be if everyone that worked for you came to you and said, Farnoosh, what's your single greatest priority for the coming week? Mm-hmm. And, and then you don't they, know. You, yeah. And sometimes you don't know, but it's important to be asked the question. That's exactly right. And then a lot of times it can lead to great dialogue. And then if you go out and do something with it, once your boss knows you're there to bring them solutions and, and solve the issues, and it's not just about your own agenda, it makes a huge difference. Right. And then you can actually measure your success because you're measuring it against what you were actually told was important to do. And you keep your boss accountable to that. Mm. Yeah. And I think there's something else too about this is that the reason I think it's magical is because as an executive, when you're running multiple global functions, like I was, I had a huge agenda, a huge change agenda I needed to drive in the organization. 
And there were times I needed his help and support because I was aligned first to what he needed in whatever it was. It might have had nothing to do with actually the functions that I was running, but I was a solution giver and I was a thought partner for him. When then I needed to go to him as the CEO and say, I need you, your support here. I need you to break this tie over there. He was far more likely to listen and be an advocate because his needs were being met first. And that's just human nature. So now, as you are advising CEOs, what do you teach them in light of kind of what's happening on kind of the external front with headlines? And I feel like there there is now this um, this eye rolling a little bit with um, executive roles where there's this assumption that some because there's been some bad apples in the press, you know, that they're taking home too much money. They're not doing enough to help their employees. They're not they're just concerned about shareholders and not the employees. So in terms of your work, what do you educate or teach or coach these CEOs as far as helping them to really, uh, I guess, um, combat these negative perceptions and images of, of being a CEO, because that I think ultimately can help hurt them in the workplace. You know, people make assumptions and it's, it doesn't help them. Yeah, absolutely. One of the first things is that you have to, as a CEO, realize that everybody is kissing your butt all, all the time. And one of the things that I have conversations with CEOs all the time, it's very seductive when you sit in these top positions and you get a less and less truth all the time because people are always managing messages and information. And you have to work very, very hard to make sure you're asking the right questions to the right people and actually getting out several layers below your first line of lieutenants and getting information. So depending on the ind- industry, I'll say to a CEO, let's go and spend a day on the front lines. Let's say they're manufacturing. Let's go and have our advisory day together and let's just go on the front lines and walk the line and talk with the employees and listen and ask them what's on their mind. Get where the informa- where the real information is because you can fill your life up being in boardrooms and executive suites and having tons of meetings. And believe me, these CEOs CEOs are killing themselves. I mean, people who are so critical, I think, could actually could never take the pressure of an executive role. They have so um, many people to uh, please and support, um, but they have to get real and they have to get out of their office and they have to get with the people. Um, so I really encourage that a mm. great deal. And, and the great CEOs do that naturally, but a lot of folks get really busy and wound up in the day-to-day grind and can get really distant from it. And so they're always getting secondhand and thirdhand information. I think the real truth to that is that you have to uh, be more accessible to your team. I mean, I just spent several days with various CEOs through uh, my work as a host on a show called Follow the Leader on CNBC. And one of the things that I found um, that was recurring in some of these CEOs patterns was that they don't sit in a corner office with the door shut. They actually sit in the middle of the office a lot of the times, um, completely accessible to everyone, whether it's the intern or their publicist. Um, so is that, do you, do you encourage that as well? I mean, as far as like literally physically, your accessibility is very important. Absolutely. And, but I think a lot of it is, 
um, personality because they can still, uh, there's a lot of younger contemporary uh, CEOs that will make a big deal about that and open plans and sitting out there. And I think it's less about that than actually the old Sam Walton adage of coaching by walking around, which he made famous. And I, growing up at Walmart, we were taught that as leaders, you just spend a percentage of your time on the floor walking around talking to people and listening. So I think it's less about where your office is or open door policies, because candidly, there's all sorts of executives that would say and CEOs, well, I have an open door policy. Well, really? Well, how inviting is it for people to actually go down this scary, hallowed hall to the executive suite? Yeah. If you've seen a lot of them, it is much more about them walking around. Um, and the people, listen, the people that can have their office or have no office at all and sit in the middle of people, God bless them. Um, it's hard to get work done that way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, candidly. So um, I think whatever works for you as an executive is important, but it's the habit of being out amongst your people mm-hmm. and being a normal human being. In your book, The Courage Solution, you talk about how, um, you know, how to really remain authentic, how to use your authenticity to get ahead in your in your work, in your career. And it's not just for CEOs. This is really a book for for anyone, right? Correct. Yep. I I talk about this. These are universal principles. I joke all the time that none of this is new um, and it's not revolutionary necessarily, but these principles will revolutionize your daily experience and your impact, whether you're a CEO dealing with a chairman of the board or you're a new college graduate entering the workforce for the first time. These are evergreen principles. Why is being truth telling? Why is truth telling courageous. Have we forgotten the importance of that? Is it something that is just not, we're not hardwired to want to do, especially in a corporate environment? Oh, uh, I actually think that we're um, experiencing a crisis in the corporate world today. And that is why I wrote this book. And the crisis from my experience is that the thing that companies and individuals need most, they often get the least. And that is the truth. And I saw it again and again, even though, as you mentioned, I've worked for three fantastic companies. I'm very grateful for that. Um, but I saw that repeatedly. And now as a, and a senior advisor at McKinsey, I see it in my own advisory practice. I see it. And there's this crisis and the crisis is the absolute absence of truth. Why? Well, because fundamentally, people don't have the courage to tell it. People are afraid to lose their jobs in the most extreme situations. Um, But also people are afraid just to be unpopular or not to be liked. Leaders want um, to feel comfortable. Uh, People in middle ranks don't want to rock the boat. And they're afraid of the negative consequences of standing up and and saying, listen, I have a different perspective on this or I disagree. So I wrote this book to show them how to do it so that they could be heard. And that's to me the art of it so that they could be more effective. So true. Um, when my listeners write in for Ask Farnoosh, one topic that always pops up is time management. And one thing that kills your time is trips to the post office. So why not get postage right from your desk with Stamps.com? The site even gives you special postage discounts you're not getting at the post office, including First Class, Priority Express, International, and more. Here's how Stamps.com works. Go to your computer and printer, buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package, then drop it in the mail. No wonder over 
over 500,000 small businesses are already using Stamps.com. And when I'm traveling to events or speaking engagements and need to get something in the mail, Stamps.com makes it incredibly easy. I can just log in at the hotel business center with my account and I'm on my way. And right now, when you sign up for Stamps.com and use my promo code SOMONEY, you'll get a special four-week trial plus a $110 bonus, including postage and a digital scale. So head over to Stamps.com today. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in So Money. That's Stamps.com and enter So Money. So what's one example of how you help people overcome that psychological barrier of, of feeling like it's okay to tell the truth? Is it, is it in a delivery? Is it like how you frame the truth or you just come out and say the truth? Like there has to be an art to it. Yeah, there absolutely is because I talk about in the book with somebody I worked with that was called the Unabomber, which is not a great label, but it's because the person would march around and they drop bombs of truth. And it wasn't that what they were saying was wrong. It was how they said it. And it didn't matter. The person couldn't figure out why they weren't getting promoted. Um, so to me, it is being prepared and thinking about the recipient and what you're conveying. And so I, one of the tools that I share, it's very simple, but your listeners might appreciate this one because it works with everyone, um, including kids. Oh, by the way. Um, but it's called the LCS method. And fundamentally, when you know you're going to disagree with someone, anyone, whether they're in power or their colleague or a team member, is you can frame things up and say, what I like about your idea is X. So that's the L. What I'm concerned about, that's the C, is Y. And my suggestion is, you know, Z. So like, concern, suggest. And it's very simple framework that it helps you to tee up how you disagree in a way that can be less disagreeable. Because for now, nobody likes to be disagreed with. No. And, and and that's just the way we are. We like to be liked and we like to be agreed with and everybody feels great. And unfortunately... Um, that's where we get into problems in our personal lives and certainly at work. So really the, what I think often people forget to do is the like and the suggest, right? They just go to the concern and that's not valuable. You know, it's like, I understand that whatever I put out, will have people who will disagree with it, but what's going to make me want to stop and listen to you is if you are balanced in your approach and that you give me something to like, if you don't like something, so what, what do you want me to do with that information? Right. Do you want me to, uh, did you hear that by the way? My phone just went off. I did. You did. All right. So I'll make sure to cut that out. And so I think what people often forget is the beginning and the end of that, which is you got to like and you have to suggest as you're stating your concern. That's right. It's absolutely right. So you have these people that you work with that are constant naysayers, and we all know who those folks are. And it's really hard to collaborate with them because, you know, they're just going to, you know, be all over whatever comes out of your mouth. But the book and what I think is so important is that people actually, the majority of time for news, people are not actually saying what they think. Mm. And so, yes, there's this diplomacy thing, but fundamentally more truth telling conversations occur in the hallway than in the boardroom. Wow. That's why you got to walk around when you're the CEO. That's exactly right. I met a CEO who had on her staff, someone who was called chief of staff which I thought was very interesting. And I, th- and I said, what does this person do for you? She goes, well, he's my eyes and ears to the company because I can't be everywhere at all times. But he, and he's not like my snooper or like, you know, the, he's not trying to um, 
dig up dirt for me, but really he's there as kind of my, um, almost like a, a clone where people can voice to him and it comes directly to me. Or he, he's the one who then educates her at the end of the day about some of the things that she may not have picked up on, which I think is actually a notable, a notable thing to, um, a notable role to have on your staff. I think if you use it for the right reasons, it couldn't be, couldn't hurt because you can't be everywhere at all times. Absolutely. I think it's a great idea. And as long as the CEO is out enough of of the time, and so that's not the only person that she's getting information from, I think that's a great solution. Yeah. So Mindy would love to learn a little bit more about you, your upbringing, your experiences, some of your financial philosophies. What is one of your financial philosophies? Do you have a money mantra? I do. It's no consumer debt ever. Ever. So you've never had credit card debt or you learned this the hard way? (laughs) Oh, man, I learned this the hard way. Um, Yeah, I was so proud of myself for graduating from college um, with no debt. I worked all through college um, 30, 35 hours a week, plus took classes full time and so didn't owe anybody anything and was so proud of that. And then promptly got this magical little plastic card and had not ever been trained or educated on how to use it. So just went off on a glorious spending spree in my early 20s. And it took me years to um, unwind those poor choices. And once I did, I was like, that's it. So I have been really, really, really um, religious about that principle ever since. What was the total debt? Oh, God. Back I think I had at one point like $30,000 in consumer debt. Yeah. Yeah. And there I am making, you know, barely more than that. I was an idiot. What were you buying? Did you, was it clothes? I was buying whatever I I saw, you know, didn't understand the concept of interest rates. Didn't understand any of it. I was just uh, ignorant and uh, travel, clothes, um, trips, whatever. Um, and so it was really a, a kind of a shocking, and when I finally kind of got my own attention, um, uh, it took me so long to dig out from that. Uh, but then when I did, I was like, I'm never repeating that error in my life again. So, and why I think it's so important for those who are in debt to really experience the getting out of debt process, you know, of course you can sometimes declare bankruptcy or you could get um, some sort of credit, maybe debt management program or, you know, but, but like the harder you make it for yourself to get out of debt, sometimes the better, because like you said, it teaches you a hard lesson fast, which is that I'm never going to get myself back into this mess. Um, How did you learn about money growing up? What would you say on a scale of one to 10, what was your um, education level about money? And and what's maybe one memory about money that you have as a kid that still influences you as an adult? So my parents were of the generation that nobody talked about money. So there were no dinner table conversations like I have with my 13-year-old son about what's the mortgage and you know how does that all work and everything because I'm quite open with him. But so my parents didn't talk about it and didn't educate us at all. Um, and so but what I do remember is my earliest memory is realizing that we were living beyond our means. And I found that out because my mom started take. she was a stay at home mom. My dad worked and she started taking in kids to babysit inside the home. 
And I remember asking her, why are you doing that? And she said, well, we need the money. And I said, well, why do we need the money? And well, you know, we don't have enough money for our expenses. And she didn't go into it much more than that, but that's when the light bulb kind of went on with me and I started watching and we would give the appearance of having more money than we had. And yet we were quite poor. And through a series of uh, events in my life, by the time I was a teenager, uh, my dad lost um, all the college education fund, all our money. We ended up losing the house, ended up in an apartment, had to move like three times in one year and got to the point where we virtually had no food on the table. And, um, and it was all because of a pattern and a history of spending what we didn't have. And it didn't matter how much my mom worked or how many kids she babysat, there was never going to be enough uh, funds. So yeah, it was not a good education, but it's a great education and what not to do. When you say no food on the table, what, how old were you? And what, so literally like there was no, how did you eat? Did you go over to, I would have just gone over to a neighbor's house or something. Right. That was in in my junior year of high school. We were in a new town because we had to move again into a cheaper house. And there was like stuff in the pantry, but there was like it was very much like canned goods. That's all we were eating. And keep in mind, it was the contrast from believing kind of like, oh, everything's kind of good to when everything the house of cards came down actually wasn't. And my mom kind of had a nervous breakdown and, and there were, you know, there were no big shopping sprees at Myers cause I grew up in Michigan or anything. And so that was kind of like, it was very slim pickings in the um, food department. So it was a, it was a pantry run, you know, mm-hmm. you could have something from a canned good or whatever. Right. It was not good. How did you get yourself through college eventually if, the, if all the money had been used? So I moved out at 17 and I got a job when I got to school, I got accepted to school and I got a job and I had every bit of my paycheck go towards my tuition and lived on, which sounds absolutely crazy now, $8 every uh, two weeks um, at school. And back then I didn't have a car, I didn't have anything. And so I, I you know, ate in the on campus and I was on the food plan or whatever and I just had all the money that I made. Um, I was a, I was a um, custodian. And then I worked in the music department and played the piano for the music students. And um, that's how I paid for school. Wow. You said $8 an hour? Every two weeks. Eight? No, $8 every two weeks. What? I can't remember what I made an hour. Oh, no. I lived at $8 every two weeks. 80 or but, eight? Eight. 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 Less than 10. Eight. Dollars My mom used, every... Oh, how did, yeah. How does that even... Okay, that, that's but, just... you know, I, I, I had no money. I had no money, but I would go, I mean, what did I need money for? Like, mm-hmm. it was back in the late 80s, and I lived on campus, and I could eat in the cafeteria, and I just had no spending money to do anything fun, and my mom used to tape quarters to three by five index cards, because my parents had no money, because I just escaped that whole disaster in Detroit, and she would tape quarters if she had extra extra quarters so I could do laundry because that was my biggest expense was I had to go to the coin laundry to wash my clothes. So, and I was always so happy if I got an envelope and it was heavy because I knew there were quarters taped to those three by five. So when you first got your, when you got your first job and you're making more than $8 every two weeks, what, 
did you think? What what were you like in your head? Were you just had you won the lottery? Totally. I was I was a moron. Like and that's when it was the it was the combination of having a job and then the credit card. And that's how I screwed myself up because I didn't understand the concept of a budget and outgo. And it sounds so embarrassing and elementary to say it today, but it it was true. I just didn't know what I was doing. Mm. Well, gosh, we've all been there. I mean, I definitely had my bout with credit card debt in my 20s. It happens to the best of us. Okay. Tell me a little bit about success though. When you first experienced true financial success, what what happened? What where were you? Well, I'd say it was a couple years ago uh, when we sold Jim Beam, the global liquor giant, to Suntory. I was running strategy and M and A and human resources and communications at that point globally for the firm, and um, ended up being. Um, and the, and the small group of people that we negotiated the deal, Centauri came and it was a $16 billion acquisition. And I had never, for all the years I worked at Beam, sold any of my stock. And I fundamentally believed in what we were doing and the company and our, our future prospects, never imagining that we'd get bought. And um, so when the transaction went through, I had this economic moment and it gave me the opportunity to make a huge choice and the choice was to cash out and move on and create a different life or stay and in fact stay and potentially become the CEO because the Suntory offered that to me as well so it was a really interesting moment on several fronts so was it um well, I don't know. I don't know what the question is, but I mean, I'm I'm just curious as a female at a company like Beam that I suspect is largely male in an industry that's largely male. How did you make your mark? Was it difficult? Did, what were your specific challenges, if there were any? Sometimes you make assumptions about gender issues in the workplace when there are, when maybe that person didn't feel like they experienced any. So I'm not going to assume. I'm just curious. What did you have anything that was unique to being a woman in that environment? Yes, I mean you're always. Um, yeah, there weren't any women in the room. Certainly not in the boardroom, and uh, you know the on the executive team. Um, and just in general, you go out on sales calls and you've got these you know, old, old guys that have been in the business. Um, and the spirits business is not exactly a sophisticated, um, female friendly business. If you think about everywhere alcohol is sold. Um, so yeah, there, I had some interesting experiences, but by and large, um, the team of people that I worked with were fantastic and we had a great leadership team. And we were all kind of oriented around um, growing and turning the company around because it was a turnaround situation for several years. Um, and I, I'm kind of bold and <laughs> say what I think, but hopefully applying everything that I learned that I put into this book so that people could hear me and um, just built great relationships with people so that they looked past both my gender, but also past my label as the for the early days, I was chief human resources officer and they just saw me as a colleague there to help the business grow. And I think that was probably one of the reasons why I was successful there. Hmm. What's one of your habits now, Mindy, uh, that you, that helps you with your financial life? You know, you're, you're debt free now and, um, 
it's been many years, but what's something that you practice consciously that helps you with your financial well-being? So I try and do two things every day or several times a week. Um, one is I try to meditate every morning for a few minutes. And then I also keep a gratitude journal and it doesn't probably sound too left brainy <laughs> to you, um, but I do those things and they help me. Those uh, practices help me stay really grounded and keeping an abundance mindset versus kind of a scarcity fear mindset. Um, and realizing that, that I have a ton to be grateful for. What I've noticed is that the more, more conscious I am of being appreciative of my blessings and all the great things in my life, the more abundance comes in in every area, not just financially. And so I find that practice to be really powerful. Why do you think, I, I, I've heard other people talk about being very conscious about what they're grateful for, writing it down, and that it reaps them benefits. But what do you think is the... The real reason for that? I think that um, it's like being tuned into different radio stations. And I think that if you're on the radio station, the frequency of being grateful and happy and looking for the good um, and acknowledging that, that more of that comes into your life. Some people call it like the attraction, you know, theory, what you think about, you bring about kind of some of those metaphysical concepts. I actually think that's how the universe works. And I've seen it in my life. The more um, grumpy I get and um, ungrateful or complaining I get, I tend to get more situations in my life for which I can be grumpy and complain and be ungrateful. Well, <laughs> so, they say the opposite is true. It's, uh, totally. I mean, they say like you are what you eat, but what about you are what you think? <laughs> That's probably I, absolutely. a stronger correlation in some cases. Um, let's do some so many fill in the blanks now, Mindy. This is when I start a sentence and you finish it. First thing that comes to mind. All right. All right. If I won the lottery tomorrow, let's say a hundred million bucks, the first thing I would do is do exactly what I'm doing today. Not change a thing. Wow. No, I mean, I keep doing my thing. Try to try to get my message out, my books out and help other people. I probably go buy a house though. Okay. Thank you. Let's be real. Let's like actually use that. (laughs) Let's do something fun. One thing that I spend on that makes my life easier or better is my mom. I hired her to manage my, this is embarrassing to say, but I hired her to manage my life, my house, my everything. And she does great. So I can like focus on nice. work. My mom is waiting for me to call her one day and be like, will you please be my stylist slash assistant. But like, I don't, I don't want her to, I don't know. I just feel like I don't need that right now in my life. And if I did, I don't know if she'd be the most qualified, but <laughs> thanks mom. I really appreciate the, uh, the, I mean, she's also like, I'll be your nanny. I'm like, well, you know, geographically that would be impossible. You're in California, but, uh, you know, a, a grandmother can dream. <laughs> One thing that I splurge on, this is like something that you really like put the big bucks towards, but you really, you wouldn't have it any other way is Dolce and Gabbana dresses. Really? All right. That's, I like the specificity of that. That's (laughs) It's my favorite guilty pleasure. All right. And they make, and they, they, I just love the cuts of those dresses because it really enhances like womanhood, you know? 
it's not these like other dresses where I feel like I have to be, you know, a, an Amazon woman to, to wear. Cause like right. they don't make room for the hips and the boobs and all that, you know, all that. Totally. I got all that going on. So I, I need Dolce and Gabbana. Those boys like women. <laughs> yeah. They hug those women. Um, <laughs> all right. One thing I wish I had learned about money growing up is how to budget. Yeah. When I donate, I like to give to blank because family members, uh, because I believe charity begins at home. And last but not least, I'm Mindy McKenzie and I'm so money because I'm so blessed. Wow. Thank you very much, Mindy. Everyone, the book is called The Courage Solution. And we're so happy that you were able to stop by and share that with us and wishing you ongoing success. Thank you so much, Mindy. Thanks, Fredish. It was a pleasure. That's a wrap. If you'd like to learn more about Mindy, her website is mindymckenzie.com. She's on Twitter at Mindy underscore McKenzie. And the book is The Courage Solution, The Power of Truth-Telling with Your Boss, Peers, and Team. All this over at somoneypodcast.com. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. Hope your day is so money.